Well, on this episode, the tables are turned and the wonderful Amir Nasir from Assertive & Co, who was featured in episode 21, is interviewing me. During this conversation, uh, you might get to understand a little bit about my work and why I decided to create a podcast uh, at this time, interviewing men on what it means to be a man in today's world. I really believe that the conversation is a really important one to have and I wanted to have I wanted men to be able to have an experience of uh, familiar familiarity listening to other men talking about vulnerability and strength and how to handle anxiety and business development and business growth and business for humanity and so on. Uh, in a way that enabled them to know that their experience was not something that they were uh, that it was occurring in isolation. So uh, I do hope you enjoy this episode. It is uh, a little bit uh, unusual for me to put myself out there, but many people ask me what I do, and my daughter has asked me for all of her life, and I've never been able to explain it. So hopefully, Amir's insightful uh, interview will help you understand a little bit about my work in the world. Please enjoy this episode. Christine, or should I say Dr. Christine? Good to talk to you today. (laughs) Christine is just fine. Thank you. Good to have you. So today you're doing things a little differently. Yes. You're on the spotlight. uh, You're on the hot seat. And the questions are going to come your way. And I'm going to do my best to articulate questions based on my experience working with you and also knowing what you do working with a lot of people out there who mostly tend to be men. And so for over 20 years, I mean, you've been the go-to confidant for hundreds of intensely driven, successful businessmen, and you've given them, I guess you could say a safe space. And Mm -hmm. of course, thanks to your incisive facilitation within this safe space that you create privately, it allows these men, it allows people like me to some extent, because I can very much relate, to open up about inner obstacles that, yes, I would open up about to a close friend, but there's something different about having that dynamic with a woman who clearly is wise, informed, and has this amazing ability to have these kinds of conversations. And where I want to start the conversation with you is, what are some of the crucial dynamics in your relationship with men growing up that has had a profound impact on you? I've always wondered about that. Hmm, that's a great question. <laughs> well, I, I am the middle child of three. And I have an elder brother and a younger sister. And my father was um, Australian, Australians sort of come up on the British system. And so my father was educated in the British style, which essentially is wrestle if you're in the British wealthy sort of class. And we're not wealthy, but that was the generation that my father was brought up in and was rip the sun out from the parents' hands when they're eight years old and throw them in boarding school. And, uh, and so that was my dad, but my dad and I have always been extremely close. And I was the person that was uh, of my entire family that was, uh, given the opportunity to deal with my father when he was a bit 
uh, upset. So it was always my role to go, go in and calm my father. And uh, I was never intimidated by that for some reason. And just to give you a little bit more context on that, I'm only short. So I have just made it past five feet. So I'm a, a little person. <laughs> and, <laughs> and yet I found myself the one that was always facilitating uh, my father's emotional roller coaster. Not, not that it was often, uh, but I was certainly the one. And I was also the one that, that I can remember very clearly when my brother, my elder brother, was being bullied at school. I was the one in between. I was the one that goes, you have to get through me to pick on my brother. And <laughs> I honestly don't know where that came from. Uh, but uh, I also know that in the choice of what I did and my education and, and in, in fact, most of my life, I've spent a, the majority of my time around in predominantly male environments. I went through university with 200 men and six women in my sort of class area and so yeah. uh and i never thought about it it was never something that was a problem uh i i could look back now and go you know that was interesting but i never i never saw it as anything i never saw it actually i didn't even see it at all but i made a decision that if i was going to uh be part of what was happening then jump in like join and so that meant that uh, when my uh, university, the college students uh, started a rugby club, uh, that I was going to be the secretary of the rugby club. And so I was the first ever female secretary of a rugby club in Victoria. Mm -hmm. And, but it was, it was like, okay, well, you either get in the game and engage or you stand on the sidelines and you're outside of the, the conversation. And so it was just, and I've always been like that. I mean, when my daughter went through, um, did any classes in whatever it is, ice skating, I'm not going to sit on the bleachers. Mm. <laughs> Give me some skates. You know, I'm going to get in and play the game as well. And so, but that, that, so for me, that's, uh, I, I, I'm one of the few uh people that I know that have spent a lot of time with men, but also I'm not intimidated by, uh, I'm not intimidated by either power, authority or, or conflict or anger, uh, all of that. So, so that really raw um, emotion, whether it's, whether it, and it ranges from whether it's angry through to intense sadness or any of the extremes in between, I'm okay being in that space. And I'm okay not only being in that space, but not, judging the space that that's emerging uh and so that's i guess that's pretty unusual is that because you have a certain temperament that allows for that or is it because you were exposed to these intense expressions of strong emotions with these men in your formative years and because you were exposed to these emotions you knew how to handle them and you kind of became used to them desensitized or perhaps even informed about what's driving them yeah and i'll, I'll make a really clear distinction here uh, because it's different if the emotion is being uh, projected at you in other words someone is extremely angry at you or bullying i'm um, not not that I've been bullied, um, but um, when it's being projected at you, and if it's if it's in that category of somebody that that you deeply care about or you want their um, opinion, I have been like a regular human, um, reduced to my knees, 
around that. So I know what that feels like. But when I'm, when I'm witnessing other people and they're in that really high level emotional intensity, uh, I, it doesn't disturb me. I can stay centered and grounded and I, and it, and I can, um, and I can manage to do that in a way. So, so going back to my father, his anger, it was rare that his anger was projected at me. It was, it was something else. It, it was just human, you know, it was human anger. And so I could go in into that and find a way to diffuse that. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, it was just, it was just, I think the first requisite of that was that I wasn't afraid of it. Right. I've never been afraid of it. I've never been afraid of, of that, of, of standing in the heat of that. Uh, and, and so that's a start. And then the second part of that is that it's, it's uh, it, once you're there and, and you can bear witness to the experience that is real for whoever's having the experience, I think that's, that's 50% of, of the process is just to be present to it and, and to not make it wrong and to not be feeding it by yelling back at it or whatever it is or making the person feel ashamed or any of that sort of stuff. It's, it's uh, just being really present, really, really witnessing it, and that's a huge part of that. A lot of communication is unspoken. When you interact with men in your work, you must notice a lot in the communication that's being conveyed that isn't spoken, but that is informative, that is insightful. What are some of the patterns that you've noticed time and time again? Well, the majority of the men that I have worked with are ambitious and, uh, and empire builders, you know, they, they have this vision and this, they want to, they want to do stuff and they're action oriented and, and so on. And, but there's also a piece that is, a, is required for work to be done and that is that they need to be open to something. They're, they're, they're coming either to me or they're coming to somebody because something about the way they're engaging in life is, is, is off for them. There's an emptiness or a, a so on. And so there's that openness. And so my first, I'm, I'm an incredibly curious person. I really like to know what's going on for people and why they're, why, why they're making these decisions. Uh, but that's really probably my first sort of port of call is to sense into, feel into, you know, what is underneath mm. whatever is being expressed. And quite often what's underneath has never been expressed. Right. To, 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 to the person ex making the expression <laughs> and to me. And, and so that's, that's a, a large part of it is we, our emotions are signals for something that needs exploration in my point, from my point of view. And so what is, what is that? What is it that wants to be said here that the emotions are the way, the only the way that we can figure out to do that and, and, and really looking at what is that. And so it's, it's not even necessarily the, um, the visual cues. It, I mean, I'm really, I'm just really, really tuned into, uh, both the uh, language patterns, energy, the energy that, that they're coming from, um, the tone of that, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's hard to describe because I do a lot of work in the virtual realm as well. So it's not always face to face. And uh, in fact, I was trained 
20 plus years ago as a coach in the virtual way. So listening, listening as a pure sense is something that, that um, I've been trained to develop very highly without the visual cues. And, uh, and so, yes, it's, I'm listening for, I'm listening for the emotions. I'm listening for the, for the energy and I'm listening for what's not being said as much as what I'm, what is being said. I don't think anyone who's worked with you or who knows you well enough would say that, you know, this is a profession for you. It's really a calling. And I'm wondering why, why this specifically, why not other things? Because this has been pulling at you for quite some time. Yeah. uh, I, well, there's sort of two ways I could answer that. And way number one is that I have always been very passionate about business and human enterprise. And, uh, and I'm, and I'm very much, as I said, you know, I get in the game. I like to be playing versus sitting on the sidelines. Uh, But then I also know through my own journey that, that unpacking what we are to bring to the world in its full, its fullness and its majesty it is not for not every, not everyone it arrives on a plate and says here i am so my mm-hmm. father was different you know he he knew what he wanted to do when he was 11 year 11 years old and i looked at him and going i, I don't understand that uh, i was blessed and cursed equally with being skilled at a lot of things simultaneously yeah. and so so that gave me a, a field of options vast field of options and sometimes it takes a long time to figure out what that is and to and to know the instrument that you're playing and to be able to play it in in a way that that is really coherent with the world and so and then there's there's that and then there's the entire existence that we have as humans in a world that says that we should look like this do that go to this school or do this or if you do this this is what will happen and of course all of those structures are being broken down in our current environment but we have to break through the territory that that has the the cultural enculturation that says that we should look like this do this and unless we have this that we're not an accepted successful human and so we have a lot of uh things to get through and just if you're a normal, a regular kind of person, yeah. not if you're a, somebody who's refugee from multiple countries, you know, that adds another <laughs> layer of complexity. But if you're a normal, you don't have, then even still you've got to get through all of these things. And, uh, and so the large part of what I'm really, really interested in working with people is helping them get through those um, um, both enculturated things, their own um, inability to trust themselves, believe in their own capacity. Uh, a lot of times I'm supporting people to navigate paths that haven't been walked on before, you know, where we're, we're writing, we're map making, we're writing the, the path as we go. And, and so there's not necessarily um, mentors or so on that have walked this, this path, but ultimately really it's, it's how can I support humans who I generally believe are good people (laughs) given the right environment how can I support humans who are really wanting to bring the wholeness of themselves uh, to the world in a way that supports humanity and our future that's pretty much behind everything I do 
You have the ability to really dial up the intensity if you wish to. And you can bring a flame and use it as cleansing fire, like really, really go for it. You're very outspoken, very assertive, and you're very principle-based. Has that gotten pushback over the years? Has that gotten you in trouble? Hmm. Uh, Yes, it absolutely has. (laughs) Um, And I'm coming out of a process of of, uh, that for the last few years. And it's been, a, it's been a really hard experience, I might say, a very hard experience. And But at the same time, it's been a really good experience, which, of course, you could only say that when it's behind you. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way it is. But what I realised is that if we step into any public spaces uh, with the right intention, so there are some people that step into public spaces that are entirely self-serving and have only one agenda, which is more for themselves. But when we step into public spaces for really good reasons, because we want to serve a greater something that is well and truly above and beyond us, then what I didn't know was when you did that, that unquestionably you were going to have people that were sitting in the arena they were going to throw rocks right and and that just happens it doesn't matter you it doesn't matter how it doesn't matter if you're a saint that's going to happen and i and and i wasn't prepared for that and so i think it's given me a, a greater appreciation for really higher levels of leadership uh that it, there's a price that you pay for for stepping into any form of public space, any form of high-level leadership. And you have to, if you do not have your, your grounded centre of the values that you hold as sacred ground, the reason why you're doing what you're doing that sometimes can get teared to shreds that you have to come back to again and again and again and really hold a center and then build around you the support infrastructure and the environment uh, that that can keep you both uh, grounded in both of those things your values and the reason why you're doing this but also keep you um, when things fall fall over um, but and add to synergistically add to what you're doing in a way that you could never do on your own. If you don't have those in place, then it's really hard. So I don't know whether that answered the question, but that's been my experience. You spent years studying coaching as a process, as a profession, as something that people can aspire to and can be conducted in a standardized you know, manner really uh, that's professionalized because it's an unregulated industry. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of coaches who grew up in a way that makes them, I guess you could say, blind to the privileges that they've had, that, you know, they haven't been punched in the face metaphorically, so to speak. And there's a great amount of spiritual bypassing emphasis on the positive rather than the harsh realities of life. And you've seen things on both sides and you're able to hold that tension of looking at injustice, inequality, um, environmental degradation, while also seeing the positive and the future in a way that's very deeply informed. I mean, you read a lot and that's also pragmatic. How on earth can you sustain that tension? And do you sometimes 
find yourself getting too caught up in the stories of injustice and the change that needs to happen? Well, yes, it's, it, it is, it is, it, it's work. Well, first of all, I have my own coaches because <laughs> I, you know, I'm committed I'm committed both to the work that I do in the world and also to my own evolution as part mm. of that. And I can't be, I can't be a great support to somebody else if I'm not um, both being supported, but also on a, on an evolving path. And I'm very, I've always been very committed to that in reference to the tension. And this really came up for me again in the last, in the more recent times, because it's very easy to fall into the cycle of despair and, and really look at, some of the things that are just not working in the world. And I was, I was uh, actually asked this yesterday and I've just made a very clear decision. First of all, my sort of core beliefs, I mentioned this earlier, I, I actually really do believe that most human beings are good people and most human beings want the same things. We want to, to a place of belonging. We want to belong. We want to be loved. We want to do work that actually feels good for us and adds value to our lives and to community and to the world. We, we want these things. We want to be uh, respected and we want to receive compensation that, that honours who we are as humans. This is, this is universal. I think this transcends culture and religion and race and all of that sort of stuff. Some of these things are really, really basic. And so, but we're, we live in a world where some of the structures and the systems that enable that are clearly not working. Mm -hmm. And so the decision that I've made uh, around how I handle that is it's not to put my head in the sand uh, and ignore what's going on because that doesn't help either, but it, it, to spend most of my energy in, on building new models and, and working with people who are very committed to to um, Charles Eisenstein's A More Beautiful World That Our Heart Knows Is Possible. And, and we'll, we'll stand in the heat of challenge of that. And what I mean by that is it's not just Einstein's quote, we can't use the same level of thinking. Um, it's, it's further to that. We also can't use the same tools and structures that got us to where we are today. Because if we do, we're just going to evoke the same. And so I am going to say, and I do say to a, a, a wonderful male leader of a tech company, can you please look at the, the people that you've just hired? You've got five guys. Hmm. And how the hell do you think? And they're all really good people. This is not to say that they're not good people. And they're all talented and qualified. And, and you could talk about meritocracy and all that sort of stuff. That's fine. But... You need diversity, and I don't just mean gender. Like you need diversity, diversity at that level. Uh, yes, if you're going to, if if you're committed to creating a world that works for humanity, you can't use the same models, which includes a a, a male stacked design tech company, <laughs> to get a different result. And so I'm going to challenge those things, and I'm, it's going to be uncomfortable. And, I mean, ultimately, in the work that I do, it's not about me imposing my will on other people. But if you're going to be doing that, we're going to have that robust conversation. And if you go, yeah, I hear you, Christine, and I'm still going to do it, okay. Just know that this is what's going to happen, and there's going to be consequences. And if, if you can live with that, well, then, you know, 
at least I've challenged you. And <laughs> I've challenged and I've challenged you with rigor. You know, it's not like a soft challenge. It's it's a it's a challenge. Oh no. And when yeah. you mount a challenge, you surely mount a challenge. <laughs> yeah. But if I'm working with a if if I'm working with a client and it's their thing that they're bringing to life, it's not my job to impose myself on them. You know, it's their thing. So and that's something that that's again, you know, another tension which I've always found very easy to hold. Uh, because I have to come back to who is this person and and what are their values and what are they trying to bring to life and uh, and in the most part it's phenomenal a phenomenal human who is really endeavouring um, they're in the arena um, and they're endeavouring to do something that's great and so I have to champion that and I will challenge uh, but I still still my role is to champion um, because any human journey is a left turn, a right turn, a left turn, a right turn, a wall, another left turn, a right turn, a hole. <laughs> and that's, so my job isn't to judge the journey, it's to um, uh, support the person that's making the journey. Yeah. And, and that said, though, I mean, you're always ideally positioned in those situations to tell founders, leaders, entrepreneurs, what they need to hear, even if it's unpleasant, even if it's inconvenient. And to have someone like you as a confidant or in the boardroom, or when there's a brainstorm happening, being able to uphold high standards, high standards when it comes to innovation, integrity, um, you know, just the things that really matter, you, you really do that very well. And I would assume that your formative experiences with your own father, with your brother, and the men in your life have been very informative for this type of work. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not afraid of, of speaking up. <laughs> Funny. <You're> not, really? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm not afraid. And in actual fact, you know, that's, that's what I'm paid for. <laughs> no one's going to hire me just to, to agree with people all the time and be the yes person. You know, like that's not, that's not what I'm hired for. And that's, but this is also why I love business and why it's not just theoretical for me. I'm a creator of businesses as well. Um, and so it's not, I, 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 I can be in those conversations and I have a very strategic mind and et cetera, et cetera. But I'm also, I also understand the difference and this sort of comes back to if it's somebody else's uh, project or company that's being brought to life, my role is to really understand both who they are as a leader and where they're at around that and what it is that they're bringing to life and probably know it even better than they know it. And then it's, it's, it's maintaining that alignment and coherence mm. because what very easily happens in any, any great uh, business is we have that, that seed idea, that, it, that precious thing that this is what I want to create. And then we get so busy and, and caught up in the creation in the outside world that we actually never come back and do the foundational work. What is it? And, and, and really get clear on holding the space for what that is. And so it's very easy then if someone comes along and says, oh, I'm a venture capitalist, I'm going to give you a series A, but you need to do X, Y, Z, um, that we, we trade we trade on the, on the integrity of the core idea uh, in, 
in the build of it and and that happens and so part of my job is to go are you do you realize <laughs> that if you make this choice that this is what you're trading and and it's a form of idea prostitution to a degree um and it might not be money that does it it could be it could be a whole bunch of things uh easier or you know i get the press or whatever it is but but so there's a really a really big part of my work is to ensure that that what is being birthed in the uh, creative and entrepreneurial space is truly aligned and coherent consistently in all dimensions not just in the 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 usual ones but how the money's created how the how the the business is structured how the governance is is created uh how the organization is designed etc etc so i'm kind of like this meta entrepreneur if we look at traditional societies or the traditional worldview in general roles are provided roles are very clear people grow up within certain lineages and families and they do what they're expected to do. But with modernity, now we have freedom of choice, freedom to pursue our dreams, especially in a modern economy. And the downside though is we've lost a lot of rituals where initiation into adulthood was involved, mm -hmm. um, coming of age rituals. And the lines of transmission of wisdom you know, from elders, one generation to another generation to another generation, that, that series and that, that ability of, of being able to transmit wisdom, it's really broken down now. And as a mentor of mine once said, you know, this day and age, you can Google wisdom. You can Google facts, you can Google information, but you cannot Google wisdom. What role do you see yourself having and people like you in your position in terms of being modern day age elders who can pass on wisdom for leaders to support them with their creative process, with their entrepreneurship and their endeavors? I actually think it's an extremely important role and one that, that uh, would be worth considering uh, in a lot more organizations and I can say this from two levels level one number one is that I'm 58 years old I definitely don't feel that and uh, I've got enormous uh, ability uh, to contribute and enormous things to contribute to the world and yet I am very aware that there is also this uh, um, cultural uh, I'm not seen invisibility that occurs when <laughs> compounded by being a woman I'm not, I'm not uh, a uh, George Clooney you know he just gets more attractive apparently as he's my age by the way mm -hmm. <laughs> but it is compounded and uh, and so I, I think there is uh, there is a huge asset that a lot of younger companies or younger led companies are neglecting and but it goes both ways as well it's it's i'm endlessly fascinated and my clients teach me an enormous amount as well so it's not like it's just one-sided but there is there is particularly in the young entrepreneurial space there's a whole lot of mythologies and sacred cows that really need to be stabbed to death yeah. and <laughs> and and 
and the opportunity to have somebody who goes, hey, you know, just let's just pause here a moment, just a moment, you know, let's just pause here a moment and really consider why you're doing what you're doing and why you're making this decision and who's making this decision. Are you making this decision? And mm. if not, who, where is that coming from? You know, where is this decision coming from? And that pause process and that ability to, to reflect and slow down a little bit. There's a wonderful expression to speed up, slow down, <laughs> but it, it, to, to really start thinking about that. Most people who get to my age, you know, we've, we've broken bones and skinned hands and, and, uh, and lost hair, all metaphorically, sometimes in reality, I haven't lost hair. <laughs> but, um, we, we, we've been around the block and, and anyone, I, anyone that has been around for a period of time, they know, know the slings and arrows of, of life. And there's, there's enormous value in that if there is a, a willingness to listen. But there is also, from my point of view, there's, uh, it's not to bring a level of arrogance because that's, you know, that's not going to work either. <laughs> mm. the, genius is present no matter what the age it's it's it, it sort of circles back to the clear path for genius to become um become a, a, a very clean transmission and that can take time that can take life a lifetime if not lifetimes buckminster fuller his work his legacy all of that has had a profound influence on you can you talk more about him and, and that influence yeah, um, I was introduced, I was blessed and sometimes cursed, but blessed to be introduced to Bucky's work in my mid-20s. And then I had the extraordinary privilege of spending a week on the big island of Hawaii uh, in the early 90s with a group of 100 people, including his protege, Amy Edmondson, who is the author of A Fuller Explanation, which is one of my favourite books, um, and we studied for the whole week, seven days. We studied the last sort of 21-hour video capture of Bucky before he died, which he described as the sort of sum total of his life's work. And we didn't just study it. We, we immersed ourselves. So it was model building and uh, dialogue around and uh, application to multiple uh, different sort of systems and so on. And so I had that incredible experience. And... I, I can honestly say that there is not a single day that goes by where I'm not informed to some degree of the work and the foundation that Bucky sort of left for the world. And just to give you a really basic example, which just floors me that there's that level of thinking. In the, in the early 1930s, and I wasn't around then, so I can't really comment, but mm. I would imagine that in the early 1930s, uh, when we were just starting to manufacture motor vehicles for large consumption, we were just starting to build roads and infrastructure for motor vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. Bucky decided to do an all-in accounting cost of a barrel of oil. And an all-in accounting cost means he looked at the cost for Earth to manufacture the oil that has taken several billion years to manufacture. So he looked at that. He looked at then the smaller level of man's finding it, extracting it, refining it, transporting it, using it, 
and then the post-use that we commonly know as pollution. Uh, and he figured out at that time in 1930 that an all-in accounting cost for a barrel of oil, there was not a single human on the planet, including the wealthy at the time, that could afford a single barrel. And, of course, we know that we will now be paying for that lack of accounting for several generations, if not right. multiple generations hence. And so that's the type of thinking that he had way in advance. And I, I was saying to a group of people that I was working with yesterday that when we're innocent, we're innocent. But once we know, you can no longer pretend not to know. Yeah. And so once you know stuff like that, you you can't put your head back in the sand. We have to begin to make different choices. And so, but he, again, you know, on the other side of that, his work was uh, endlessly curious. And while he was exposing things that most people didn't want to talk about and still to this day do not want to talk about, uh, he was also completely caught up in this beautiful world that was entirely possible. And that's really where I like to spend my time is, is uh, um, I'd rather not be rearranging the deck chairs on the titanic but mm -hmm. actually building new models that make the existing ones obsolete and there's enormous opportunity there and 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 ingenuity and joy and human flourishing and capacity and so i have a it's not utopian but i have a a, a view that that yes the world can look like this as the saying goes ignorance is bliss and i think certain things if we don't know about them, we can be in a more blissful state, but then you read the actual proper research on something like global warming and climate change, and you're like, crap. Yeah, yeah. I wish I was ignorant about this because life was more blissful, <laughs> but now <laughs> this is you know, a ticking time bomb, metaphorically speaking, uh, of yeah. the planet going to toot, censored. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it really is bliss. And so most people aren't interested, but then entrepreneurs, they want to do things that change the status quo or many of them claim to do, you know, to want to do that. And I find the beauty of what you do, certainly a big aspect of it is you're able to raise the questions that completely destroy <laughs> that state of, you know, ignorance equals bliss and you're willing to shake things up and get people to realize that this blissful state that they're in is just for short-term convenience, but there is real consequences down the line for themselves, the business, and of course, the planet at large. And there's a lot of beauty in that because then it opens up the possibility for true long-term thriving. And so what does that look like for you specifically? Because there's a lot that you touched on in your work, your research, so many different aspects of society. But bringing the conversation back specifically to where we are today, especially with gender dynamics and the role of men and women and also elders in society, where do you see this going? Oh, <laughs> well, uh, where, I, where do I see it going? Um, well, first of all, Technology is not going to save us. Uh, humans are going to save humans. <laughs> humans making better decisions is going to be the thing. Technology can aid, mm -hmm. but to actually put technology in the centre is a fool's game, in my opinion. Uh, we have to make better decisions as human beings and we have to make informed decisions. And so that does mean 
informed decisions. And one of Bucky's principles uh, is start with universe first. Uh, so the principle of synergy, which can be described both in, in two ways, but I'll give a very simple description. Synergy for me is one plus one. So take one person and another person or one element and another element. And mm. the outcome has to be exponentially greater than two. Yeah. And so, uh, but it also is that you can't determine the whole by examining the, the parts separately. So you, no amount of examination of a chrysalis will determine a butterfly. It doesn't matter whether you're a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Huh. If you didn't know the out, you know, you could, you could not determine the butterfly from the, particularly in the early stages of chrysalis. You couldn't, it's not there. And so no exact amount of figuring out that we take an inert metal and a poisonous gas and we put them together and we sprinkle it on our food. I mean, you, you, that's the power of synergy. And I, I'm interested in exponential relationship not exponential organizations. And so because I know that when humans come together, and this is the tricky bit, when humans come together around a central organizing something that they really give a shit about, something that they, they really care about, when humans come together and they do that and they find a way to do that that is elegant and enables their full agency within the community that they're creating and that they have design thinking around how that, that happens, how mm. that organization is designed. And they're very clear on the purpose and the reason why we're doing that. But when humans do that, we can do anything. And I, I go back to, I go back to JFK, you know, we choose to go to the moon. He said that in 1961 and mm. a bunch of years later, what happened? And so don't anyone tell me that we can't, we can't in a very short space of time get all of our energy from renew renewable resources. It's not that the, the, the uh, technology is not there. It's the human will that is required. And, and I, I am also of the opinion that we're not going to find this from our, in our current model from the traditional leaders. So it's not going to come from the politicians. That's pretty evident uh, anywhere in the world, including Australia. It's not going to come from them. And I do actually know some really good-hearted politicians, but it's not going to come from them. It's generally not going to come from large corporates. It's going to come from people coming together and saying, on our own, difficult, come together and, and we can do this. And so that requires, there is a definite ingredient to that, coming back to the state of eldership and so on, there is a high requirement for diversity in that. And I, it, diversity of everything, <laughs> age, gender, culture, level of education, background, et cetera, et cetera. And it, the, the brilliance that can come out of a synergistic response uh, and people, hopefully people have had an experience of this, is extraordinary. You can never predict it, but it requires diversity and it requires the infrastructure and the technology of human, what I call human relational design to enable that to come through the moon and back, you know, like, heck, we can do anything uh, from that place. But it, it is humans creating technology to do that. I have a new way to describe you. <laughs> this is how I would describe you. I would say, oh, wow, she's a one-woman leadership accelerator. 
<laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, with caution, it's a cautionary tale, you know, that not everyone wants, because <laughs> this is the truth, not everyone is up for the type of honesty and, and integrity that, that uh, I'm, I'm going to at least have people look at. Uh, I believe in sovereign choice, but I'm going to have at least people look at, and not everyone's up for that. And not everyone thinks it's possible. You know, I think it's possible. I really do. I think it's possible. I believe in the power of humans and I believe in the power of, I definitely believe in synergy because I know it from my own experience of building um, enterprises with people. So, yeah, I, and once you've been part of that, that's the other thing that I know for sure is once you've been, once you've been part of a synergistic group of people working on something that you really care about, you can't stay in isolation. Because I know myself that on my own, I am a fraction of the potential of who I am when I work with the right people around a central idea with the right environment and the right structure around that. I would say it's hard to have fulfillment without the courage to look inside. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. The uh, the inner work. The inner work is the is the hard work. Always, always. It's but the hardest work. It's going to the moon. You know that's easy. It's all of the bits. You know how we. St- yeah. It's the hardest work. See, but, but, and, the, but, and the most fulfilling as well. You know, yeah, like it's, yeah. it's also most valuable. Yeah. But I, I often wish that it, it wasn't necessarily the hard work, because I mean it is but a lot of people shy away from it precisely for that reason. Cause they start looking within and they're like, Oh crap. Nope. This is too painful. I've been running years and years and years operating based on coping mechanisms. And you know what? Things are fine just the way they are. Cause if I start looking within and questioning too much, gosh, am I going to have to contend with a lot and leaders, they have to just based on circumstance based on the level of challenges we're taking on, like we're going to get metaphorically or sometimes literally punched in the face and it sucks and we have to look within. And I think what makes it worthwhile is what happens at the end. On the other side, when we come out of the process fully and that's fulfillment, but fulfillment is hard to describe. And so I guess one way of talking about fulfillment that maybe is more relatable is the outcome that someone can expect if they're desiring to go through the process, to stay committed through it, and to come out on the other side. Why would that be worth it? What's the reward? And I guess we could answer that question, or perhaps you could answer it, by providing anecdotes without disclosing identities, of course, you know, to be respectful of privacy. But what are some of the anecdotes that you can share stories of transformation of the people you've worked with who came out of this process on the other side with a life that now is fantastic and wonderful and full of deep fulfillment? Um, well, so and there, there is actually so the, the inner experience and the outer experience. The inner experience is always, uh, to some degree, is a sense of the inner experience of fulfillment, is a sense of belonging in the whole of yourself. <laughs> and and you can't know that experience until you really have it. Yeah. Uh, 
but it is a sense of belonging in in the whole of yourself and and actually um liking who you are in the world uh for for all of it for um, i'm a feisty and i do tend to react and blah 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 you know get angry or whatever for all of it so i have to like myself love myself for all of those pieces uh so some anecdotes well you know i'll i'll give you a give you a couple that i can think of just off the top of my head so i've worked with a lot of young younger men and for many years actually and and so what i've seen uh in some in many circumstances is that they're on a path and it's been a conscripted path that they didn't know it's conscripted but a societally conscripted path and there's something inside that feels empty and broken and hollow it's just not right and I don't know what it is. And this is a very normal human experience. I don't think there are many people that don't go through this. Mm. So there is something that is just not right. And they don't know what it is and they don't know how to address it. And so to go into that dialogue, to, to actually go interior, internal, to have that conversation. And it's not necessarily an easy conversation. But the other choices to live a life with this hollow chest hollow heart hollow being uh and and feel that you're missing out on something or something's missing and so to dive deep into that have oftentimes what comes up what what is the full expression and in this one circumstance i'm thinking of the person had built a life and a career and an identity Mm. around an expression put in an enormous amount of time an enormous amount of effort had established a public um, large, successful profile and a massive identity around this. And so to sit, we went uh, and did a, a two-day retreat to, to really look at what, what was wanting to be born. And it was actually, it took the full two days for the courage to come up to express what was wanting to be born. Mm. And the reason that it was so hard for this person to to express it was he could see no place in his identity that he had formed and the status and everything that went with that, that this other thing could fit. It it was, and you would just look at and you go, okay, so what wanted to come up for him, and I'm going to say this is, you know, to be a teacher of kids. And it just didn't fit. But, of course, from my perspective, teaching kids can live in a million different variations. But he couldn't see that because he could only see someone working at a high, as a high school teacher or something like that, a sports teacher or something like that. And so, <laughs> and I know that sounds like a really bizarre example, but that's the truthful example. And so my role then was how do we bring this thing, this undeniable want and desire to, to spend a lot of time teaching kids and, and, and bring that into the whole of his life so that he was getting to express it. And did he have to give up his identity and his, the, the life that he, in order to do that? And the answer is no. 
because I don't believe that it's necessary. I, I, you know me well enough to know that I like to work with the whole human and not separate parts. <laughs> um, and it's, it, it really is our journey is becoming wise adults and uh, is, is integration of who we are and bringing the full majesty of that to our work and our, and our lives. And so that was the journey uh, that I took with this particular person. And, uh, and it just enabled an aspect of himself to be brought alive. And he didn't have to give up. Sometimes we do, sometimes we do, but the giving up actually, when you really look at it, is not a giving up. It's a, um, because what you wanna to bring to life has more meaning to you and more value to you than what you've done to this point. But oftentimes it doesn't mean that you have to give up per se. It means there's a transformation in the way of expression. I don't know whether that's a good, ex good example, good enough example. No, absolutely. Yeah. So allow me to conclude with this final question. What do you want to be remembered for? <laughs> Well, I feel personally that the best years of my life are coming. <laughs> That's so, uh, and I am definitely on a mission. Uh, and so what I want to be remembered for, let me see. Thank you for asking this question. At the very least, uh, that I am a stand, have always been a stand for integrity and truth. Hmm. And and beauty mm -hmm. and that I uh, through my work and through uh, community building and so on projects etc inspire people to bring their whole selves to the to the table to the game to the to the game of life to life uh, in a way that uh, has them uh, show up <laughs> fully and uh, and add value to the world. I mean, my my why, my deepest why is is uh, is from Bucky Fuller, but to enable a hundred percent of su success of humanity without ecological offence or the disadvantage of any anyone, and ideally to do that in a way that is uh, beautiful and uh, inspiring to others. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you very much for <laughs> generously sharing your insights, your stories, your anecdotes. It's a pleasure. <laughs>